Well, what, what a great time and what a terrible time, what a challenging time, what a time. Yes, T-I-M-E. And um, I'm here in New York City, as uh, I realize this environment is a troubled place right about now, but we have uh, some effective measures to keep us safe as we take the advice of the people that have wisdom. And I'm here to say, take heart, try to take heart, and uh, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands as much as possible, and like I said, you know, be vigilant, and uh, use this thing up here. We've missed some dear, beautiful human beings who have succumbed to this uh, terrible scourge, and um, I'm one of those people missing some special friends in my life, and uh, I could go on and on. But I want to bring a little bit of joyful memory into this occasion. Lots of memory, meaning memories. And um, you might see me here with this musical instrument. This is the first, as actually, the two of them, the first bass that came to my beloved Jamaica, where I come from. Myself and a man named Byron Lee, who was a band leader in Kingston, Jamaica. He was very popular. He was more a businessman than a, a musician, but he knew that the electric bass, this new thing that changed music history, along with the one that I saw when I went to the theater and saw some of these musicians coming from America and there was no bass player on the bandstand. There was a guy playing a long neck guitar with four strings. And I asked my dad, I said, Daddy, can I get one of those, those guitar basses things? And thankfully my dad, we went to the music store the following day, ordered it, it came to Jamaica in a couple of months. And it was, um, like I said, first, just before all the great musicians that came along with the reggae rhythms and so on. So I, there was a little clip we showed you, me playing a little blues music, playing a tune that was uh, typical of the rhythm that we used to play as Jamaicans tried to get from the American rhythm and blues aspect. That was more something Chicago style. You probably don't remember it right now. But that was a version of blues as Jamaicans played it before it hit into the ska and to the reggae and all that. So, I took it out as a reminder, a memento, alright? Now, I am dressed in some clothing that people are going to say, hey man, what you wearing all them clothes for? Well, I'm bringing myself and you back to the very beginning of how I became a musician. I fell in love with this thing called music and what happened when the music was played with people the human aspect, and from a very young age, I became a kid in the candy store with music, all kinds. And one of the first musical delights I had was going to the theater, the movies, and seeing what was a phenomenon that started in the 30s, 1930s, and the 1940s, and went through the 50s, and in the 60s it ended up on television, a lot of these shows that were called westerns. Westerns, which told mythical, logical stories of adventures in the West, meaning what we used to call the cowboys, not cowboys of today, but the cowboys, the guys that worked with the cattle and uh, herded them and go, went up the Chisholm Trail from down in Texas up to Montana and these places. So I fell in love with that because I heard 
singing coming from people like this man, Gene Autry. Here you see him standing with Duke Ellington. You say, how come Gene Autry is with Duke Ellington? Well, there was mutual respect among good, good music. Not this kind of music and that kind of music, but just good music, right? So as a kid, I would dream I was one of those cowboys. And I would go in front of the camera and be a cowboy. I had this holster made so that I could go into my imaginary dream world, stand in front of the mirror, and act like I was John Wayne or somebody. And this is my holster that I had made. And the holster, I'm holding a weapon of peace. This is a peace weapon. It plays musical notes. And I'm going to play Island in the Sun. Here's my cowboy hat. I'm going to change it to my straw hat. More, uh, more about my island in the sun. Well, so on and so forth. So, this was my introduction to music. The first music I heard, and it reminded me of the Calypso Island music that was introduced to us by a man by the name of Harry Belafonte. And I just did a song by Mr. Harry Belafonte, and I had my notes here, can't find them right now, I was, I was going to show you a picture of Harry. Where is my Harry picture? Got lost. Okay. Me and Harry, a wonderful human being, a great advocate for people that are disenfranchised and challenged one way or another. Harry Belafonte. He introduced Island in the Sun. So here is the cowboy kid, Monty Alexander, going through life dreaming on his piano. From four years old, I'm starting to play the piano and I found a connection to happiness even more than the regular happiness. If I was happy and I started to play the piano, I got double happy. Figure that one out. Yeah, but I had a gift. Where did it come from? I can't figure it out. Guess what? I just resolved and resigned to the fact that it was a gift. And a gift, you can sometimes question, where did it come from? What, what is this gift? And some of us who fall into one passion or another, whether it's art or whether it's drama or what, but in my case, music. I guess the great example through the centuries is a man named Wolfgang Mozart, right? And you still have young, young people coming out of the woodwork. Where did they come up with that gift? Well, I was one of those people because I never really took many lessons. The couple of lessons I got, the teacher meant well and she hit me on my knuckles and she said, you must hold your hands like that. I said, man. I've been grooving playing my boogie-woogie from the get-go, right? I'm playing my cowboy songs, I'm playing my calypsos, and I'm smiling the whole time, and everybody's smiling with me. So all this is just to give you a lead-up. You know, I've known other musicians that were in the world of what's called jazz. One of them, a friend, a hero, and a, a true master of this form. His name is Sonny Rollins. And Sonny, being a West Indian man, come up from the, island, the Virgin Islands, they was, as a kid, he went to the, the movies, like I did, I'm a little younger, but many of us of that era went to the westerns, and we sat there in the theater, and yes, there was the guns, and they were shooting at each other, the good guys trying to get rid of the bad guys, and um, that was a part of the whole thing, all right, a fantasy land. But for me, I maintain an attitude of how it is when you're young, and you're childish, and you're not, you know told things that complicated your mind and if you purified your mind tried to be clear and you sat there and whether it was a saxophone like Sonny Rollins or Monty Alexander and his piano and so many others I know 
you become like a child again. This thing about being a child is crucial to the, the artist's expression. Because who, who, who's normally going to sit at a piano and just make up stuff? All right. So the years go by and through, I call it divine intervention, I met this, the greatest musicians in the world. I you know, have these little momentos, and that's me back in 1979, and 1980. I'm playing in a wonderful combo of musicians with the great Mitt Jackson, and there is Monty Alexander, piano man. There's Mr. Ray Brown, I say the king of the bass, because he, when he played those notes, they were like thunder and lightning, believe you me. Mickey Roker swinging on the drums, and this was a great quartet. And right about now, I think um, uh, NPR, WBGO in New York, they're playing this music, a live concert, when I played with Ray at Lincoln Center 20 years ago. Exactly, tw exactly. I mean, give or take a few days, right? But there was a concert just being played on um, NPR. So a wonderful time was had. Now I'm going to tell you, I received another gift. I was playing in a bar in Miami and in came a man and his friends. And one of the, the people was a man named Jilly Rizzo. Jilly owned a nightclub in New York. And it was a bar, a bistro, a restaurant, small place. Maximum people that could come there were 60 crunched up together. <laughs> it wasn't socially distanced, I can assure you. And the most popular individual at that time in the entertainment world was a man by the name of Francis Albert Sinatra. Yes, this man, uh, Italian-American, Hoboken, New Jersey. He grew up challenged on the, on the streets of Hoboken and uh, he wasn't much of a school student, but he learned it, he learned what was necessary. And he picked this music up as a young musician, a young man, and he became the most beloved, popular artist in what we call show business, but music, period. And I got to know Mr. Frank Sinatra, and it was because of people like him, when he tapped me on the shoulder and said, kid, you're doing great. And I ended up playing for Mr. Frank Sinatra. I played, played at a couple of events. One, I remember very distinctly, at the home of a very respected publisher at the time, Mr. Bennett Surf. And I was playing there, and Jilly was there, his, you know, Sinatra's right hand, and he came over to me and said, hey, hey, uh, Frank's going to do a number. I said, what? What number? <laughs> Meaning he's going to do a tune. So I was called upon, and thankfully Bob Cranshaw was there, this great bass player, great friend of mine, my big brother, so to speak, and we played behind Frank. And I don't remember what songs, but I remember Sinatra smiling. He looked at me as if to say, you're doing great, kid, and I'm playing. And it was a, the first of many occasions when I was around Sinatra. So, Sinatra, so he sends me this letter when um, Jilly was taken from us in a terrible car accident. He wrote me this letter, and of course it was very special that he took the time out to write me back. So, I played at Jilly's for a number of years back in the early 60s, 1963. 64, 65, and between Jilly's and a place called the Playboy Club that many people remember and some people don't remember and some people don't want to remember because at that time their, their popular uh, aspect, including all the other items, was the fact that, would you believe the doorbell is ringing at this time? We shall even uh, not answer or just tell them we'll call them back. Thank you very much.
Hello. That's my worthy number one person, Katarina, by the way. She got the phone and she's there. Yes. So when I was at Jillis, folks, I um, met a lot of great people. And Jillis was a reflection of those times, you know, five o'clock in the morning, people are still boozing and the music musicians are playing. And um, the people are coming out and there's a lot of drinking and there's a lot of carousing and you got a guy named Monty, among many others, playing the piano and keeping, as you say, keep the joint jumping. I'm not there to play what music I know and what's, what I thought I learned at some school or college. No, it's, it's what you picked up from watching your elders and your heroes. And I picked up enough so that I'm swinging at Jillies and the people like that I was there because guess what? I'm rocking the joint, as they would say. So I was very amazed that I, at the 19-year-old 19, 19 that I was, was able to be, fit in there and I would invite these various musicians that would come and play with me. And I'm including um, Mr. Crenshaw and I'm thinking of Ron Carter and um, so many great guys. Johnny Carson, the great TV host, he would come in there, have a few drinks and <laughs> sometimes you could tell he had had a few drinks. And um, Judy Garland was in there. Uh, a lot of the popular comedians of the day. So Jillis was my uh, my introduction to this fast world because I had that same experience in Miami, Florida. But I'm going to tell you about an individual now that I met at the Playboy Club. And it's not about the music world. This man was a big hero in the world of sports. He came into the Playboy Club. I met him. He was the nicest guy. He didn't come with an entourage as well. He may have had around that time, but he didn't come into the, I think he was trying to meet a certain young lady, if I can put it bluntly, and I met Joe Namath, the great football player from the New York Jets. I got to know Joe, and then just a friendly, beautiful guy, I mean, to me, he was really nice, he said, hey, Monty, I said, hey, Joe, and we just blah, blah, blah away, right? So Joe Namath, right? So sports figures that were big at the time, of course, by that time, Cassius Clay, who became Muhammad Ali, was the king of the crowd. The King of the Heat. He and Joe Namath. These were like popular figures. So I would see Joe from time to time when he come in the Playboy Club. And I remember once I'm walking across the street on the east side and I heard a little sports car nearby and the horn go beep, beep, beep. And I said, what's that? And I looked and he says, hey, Manny, it's Joe. And I saw Joe Namath. Now, other than that, I didn't get to know him to go hang out and that. But I would see him at, from place to place because he liked the nightlife while he was being this awesome quarterback for the New York Jets. So one night, I'm kind of hanging out, and I go by this club on Lexington Avenue that was called Bachelors 3. He and two friends of his decided to open up this bar, restaurant, night spot, and it was a meeting place for people to come and congregate, and I guess, you know, boys and girls hanging out and trying to meet up and have life, life continuing, right? So I go by there one night, and I saw Joe at the bar, and he's talking to some friends. And I, I go over to Joe, and, um, hey, man, yeah, hey, Joe, and I'm sitting there, we're talking, shooting the breeze, how is it, everything. And um, I wasn't working at the time. I, was, I had no job that night. But I saw two guys in the bar among all the people, and they kept looking at me and looking at Mr. Joe Namath, right? And um, I saw them. They saw me. And... Um, Next thing you know, uh, a little wave kind of acknowledgement, but not the warmest friendly look from these two men. So I left Bachelor's Three and I decided I met a young lady I knew, 
we went over to Jillis where I was working at, but I just went in to say hello and sit at the piano bar and hear somebody play. And two hours later, three hours later, I looked around, guess what? Those two guys came walking into Jillis. And as they walked by, and I saw them walk by, I, I turned around to sort of acknowledge them because I remember them from, from Bachelor's Three, and they looked at me and, hey, how are you doing? And um, I saw him touch his friend's shoulder, and he says, hey, there's that guy over there. And I waved. Next thing you know, they come over to me at the piano bar. And I sort of say, hello, how are you doing? And the guy says to me, hey, what'd you tell Joe Namath? I said, what do you mean? He said, you told him not to talk to us, right? Because they felt like Joe didn't see them. Next thing you know, I said, no, no, I, I know Mr. Joe Namath, but I didn't tell him anything. He said, you told him not to talk to us. So they were offended. And I was the subject, the object of their bother, botherment. Next thing you know, one guy takes his right hand and he goes, bam, right across my jaw. It hurt, but my brain clicked in and I said, Why'd you do that? Hey man, why'd you do that? So I'm just telling you the life and the world that that was where people were behaving in really unnecessary ways and this is what happened to me. Well, I was advised, the, the whole, you know in those movies when some terrible thing happens in the bar, the music stops, the waiters are standing here, what, what's this? Because they recognize there could have been a big problem because who knows, these guys may have been, what we used to say, carrying heat. That means like a weapon, right? So I maintained my cool, and uh, the young lady, she went to the phone to call a relative who was connected to some tough guys, literally. And I sat there and I waited for about two, three hours for them to walk out the door and, and go, go home so that I could just wait there, right? After a while, I just left the place and I kept thinking, are they following me? Because that was, that was a, a, a scary time. And I'm trying to tell you this to describe the nightlife and what could happen in those days, and indeed that one night it happened. Well, this is all to set the, we want the pace. Miles. Oh. We want miles. <laughs> My dearest number one friend, Katarina, is reminding forgetful Monty, as I ramble on talking about this and that and the other, that <laughs> probably the most charismatic man in the, the world of what was called jazz. What is jazz? To me, it was the jazz of the... The, the real days when guys were doing it, right? Before the advent of the academies. His name was Miles Davis. Mr. Miles Davis. That's it. I'm sitting playing the piano and he comes walking in with a couple of friends, a couple of ladies, another guy, and he's sitting at the end with shot, his suit. Definitely that's Miles. And he's sitting at the piano bar and whatever I'm doing, I can't tell you what I was playing, but however I was playing, I was in my element. I knew what I was doing, and I was hitting that certain thing that we call, I call it the bucket. <laughs> we, we, we're rocking in the bucket. I play, it's good. Crenshaw thought I was going to get nervous because Miles is at the bar. And what was the year? 1964. I think it was about 64, 65. So this is before he started to play a new music that I think you all, if you know the jazz world and what Miles did. But he came, walked over to me as I walked away from the piano. And if I can remember his raspy voice, where he spoke when he had had an operation to remove polyps on his throat, he talked like I'm talking, kind of. But then he had, to, he shouted and ruined his 
voice box, so he ended up talking like this. Yeah, he, he whispered. And the worst thing you could do is say, what did you say, Miles? What did you say? So he'd get really irritated because he had to repeat what he was saying, right? But I knew Miles from an almost cuddly standpoint. He was, he was really nice to me. And anyhow, he said, where you learn to play that stuff? He said another S word, right? Where you learn to play that stuff? I said, playing humble. I said, I, I don't know. I just picked it up. But I, I was hitting those notes in a way that made me feel like I was Muhammad Ali in the ring. You know, we call it float like butterfly, sting like bee. Ali was a big inspiration to me. On the piano. And he wrote his, Miles Davis wrote his number on a matchbook. And said, come on by the house. And yes, folks, from that day on, a few days after rather, I started to go to his house. And I'd sit there just being around him and friends that may have been at the house, the apartment that he, he had up on near West End Avenue in the 70s. And I'd be there on so many visits when I would come by and he'd open the door, welcome me and say, come on in. And he'd play music and he'd just hang around and talk stuff. And um, What was the apartment like? Oh my gosh, you know, thank you for bringing these questions to me. He got a hold of an architect to design the interior of his apartment in the way he wanted it to be that would make him feel comfortable and guess what the architect was designing the apartment to look like you're on a planet on outer space i am not kidding you there were no corners like in the wall with the corner from one wall to another no they were rounded off and the, the way that the architect did it and the construction it looked like you were on the planet mars stalagmites and stuff what of mites are yeah that's what it looked like. So that tells you that Miles Davis was coming from another place. You know what I mean? Woo up there. And he left you in a state of mystery. What's he up to? What's he saying? What's he coming from? And everything he would say stayed in my mind. Little comments he would make. And um, yes, for example, one time he came into Jillies with friends because he, he kept coming in on several occasions and he'd come sit at the bar and I'd start playing and hey, I'm getting used to Miles being there now. One time he sat at the bar, he said, Manny, I said, Miles, he said, do me a favor. I said, yes, what is it? Play A flat and B flat in your left hand. And play A flat and B flat in your right hand. Two octaves apart with middle C in the middle. I said, huh? What was that? A flat and B flat in your left hand, A flat and B flat in your right hand with middle C in the middle. I said, like, and I'm looking at him, right? And I said, like this? Bing, and I hit A flat and B flat and A flat and B flat, and Miles went, ow! <laughs> so what was that? This guy almost fell off the stool because he heard a sound that was so thrilling to him. Because he was about sound, and guess what? I'm about sound. Yes, you hear notes, you hear uh, runs, you hear this, but there's a sound aspect to what makes our music even richer. And that was what Miles was about. So we connected. So much so that I really felt respected by this man who was so high in the, the ladder of who was playing the best music. And me, I don't even know what I'm doing half the time. I'm just reaching for what I felt, what I sounded like. And um, he was a, a positive influence, like Sinatra was. Sinatra taps me on the back. Miles says, you do it, you, hey man, I dig how you play. One time at his house, I am... Um, just with the Miles Davis, and in comes a friend of his, who? Gil Evans, the great arranger that had 
made these beautiful albums with Miles Davis, Sketches of Spain, Porgy and Best, so on and so forth. Beautiful, beautiful music. To this day, you put that music on and you're transported to a heavenly place. You heard that trumpet of a heart beating like it was crying or it was smiling or it was punching or it was just life on that horn. No school book stuff there, folks. Gil Evans comes over and I meet Gil Evans. Miles had a downstairs uh, basement and that's where he had his punching bag when he would go to train for boxing. And he had a, I think, I'm not wrong, it was a what, what, word it's a acrosonic piano, a very humble piano. It wasn't like you'd think Miles would have a great piano downstairs. No, it was just a little piano. And he said, Manny. I said, Miles, come on downstairs. I said, okay. And Gil Evans and Miles are downstairs and I go down the stairs like they were almost like on the ship, you know. What do you call it? The circular stairs. Spiral. Spiral. <laughs> and I go down and I said, I'm sitting, say, play, play something. I said, okay. And I sit at the piano and I said, play me something here. And he snaps his finger. He snaps his finger about here. I said, what do you mean? There's no bass player, there's no drum. Yeah, just play me something here. You know? And I start to play. And I, I went on for about 20 seconds. And he says, all right. And he turns around to Gilliam and said, see what I mean? See what I mean? To me, see what I mean? He's trying to demonstrate to Gilliam's what I already knew. One more time, folks. A, a great man of music complimented me and my, to be honest with you, my ego, my confidence, my sense of self increased because these people in music are giving me kudos. Another occasion, you know, the great drummer Tony Williams was living upstairs. He had rented an apartment to him and he must have told Tony that he should come and play with me down at Jillis, which was a place for the showbiz crowd and the You'd see the wise guys, we call them, sitting around, and you'd see, frankly and, and bluntly, the hookers. They'd be in there. The hookers are there, right? Waiting for you know what. And um, there's Tony Williams. He comes to set up. And I'm playing. I just remember there's Tony, who was my age, actually. This is a rare moment to meet a, a young musician who was by that time tearing it up because he's been playing with Miles Davis, making this incredible music. And I'm playing with Tony. And if I'm not wrong, one of the nights that he played with me, Ron Carter also joined me, and needless to say, that was the rhythm section for Miles. So, and I, I was hearing, I met Wayne Shorter on occasion, and Wayne said he remembered when he came into Jilly's and saw Tony playing with me, because he knew Tony was coming there, and Miles must have told him, this Monty Alexander got the goods, right? And um, Wayne said to me, I remember when I came in there to hear you guys, and Jane Mansfield was sitting at the table. <laughs> Jane Mansfield, you know? So these are anecdotes about Mr. Miles Davis and really quite a, quite a lot more to share with you. Some of it like when he would say things that I don't want to repeat here because, you know, he had a, an ability to cut with a, with a razor with the language, right? You know, I, um, he, I remember when he sh showed me this album he was going to have released called ESP. And um, frankly, you know, as smart as I thought I was, I didn't realize what ESP meant. And I said to, to Miles, I said, this music you're playing was a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And, he's, and they had the, the, the artwork, and there was he sat sitting with this beautiful lady in his life, Frances Taylor, the lady on the cover of the uh, live at the Black Hawk, I think, and you saw her on Someday My Prince Will Come. 
And um, so I asked, I asked my, I said, what, what does ESP mean? And he looked at me, Eason. I won't go any further, but Maz had a way with words. <laughs> so I remember all these things with this man. And um, I was around him also in the later years when he had um, come through, let's call it hell. And he met a wonderful woman named Cecilia Tyson, the great actress. And she helped to um, set him back in a good way. And we were able to enjoy the artistry and the talents and the shenanigans of the great Miles Davis. Because uh, I saw him again in later years. I was playing at Mikkel's up on the west side. And he came in there with a Heineken, a bottle of Heineken. And he came up to me and I had this band with two musicians who hadn't tuned up the guitar when the guy was playing a steel drum. And it was really kicking in the sound department. And I went to the bar after we played. And Miles was sitting at the bar. I said, Miles, how are you, man? And Miles looked at me and said, hey, Manny. I said, what? I said, your band sound like shit. I said, what? And guess what? I knew it because the guitar player hadn't tuned up. The, 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 the guy playing the steel drum was, you know, I had several, some guys were great on the steel drum and some guys didn't really tune up well. And, and I, she I said, wow, that, and I hurt my feelings, needless to say. And I went back to play the second set just with the trio. And Miles came and sat right by my, my foot on the little bandstand. He sat there for the whole set. And I just remember him sitting there going, ah, yeah. Okay, wow, all that, you know. And he was a part of the band, just sitting there. And um, I would say I got to know that man quite well. And it all happened at Jillis. And it wasn't, it was during that second era where he started to wear this more, I call it pajamas, right? But he was playing a music that was rock inspired. He saw the English rock groups and he was aware of their success because lines were on the block and they were paying the money. And I think besides the, the interest in this music, because Miles was just an overall musician. He played everything, anything, and made it beautiful. And he brought his charisma and his talents to a music where he had musicians playing electric sounds and weird sounds. And he wanted that thing we call the backbeat. He had put the funk on it where you tap your foot. And he would be in there riding on top of it and walking on the stage like a gazelle, like a panther, like a black panther, that's it and um, mesmerizing people. My Katarina over there in Legion is reminding me of the little stories I told her. On my way to Mitten's Playhouse where I played in Harlem, he, uh, he welcomed me and I go in and, and he was playing some music. He said, come on in. I said, I said yeah, he said, what's up, Miles? He said, ah, man, I'm listening to this music. Check this out. And he went back to his record player and the 45 record was on the turntable. And he pressed the button and he dropped that little 45 record and the music he was playing that he was so excited about was the Isley Brothers. It's your thing. Boom, boom. Do what you wanna do. That's it. And he was, so he fell in love with this music from people like Sly and the Family Stone, uh, the Isley Brothers, James Brown. Miles got bored with just standing there with the trumpet and making mesmerizing music. He wanted this other thing and he started walking on the stage and people were just absolutely affected incredibly except for the die hard I call them people who are coming from that what I call the tunnel vision of this is what it is and this is what it isn't. Now mind you I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy who's saying this is what it isn't because it's anything. Anything goes. Anything that's good that's what you do and that's been my, my I try to have as my philosophy. I feel like I've been talking for three hours.
Isn't there a story with you and Ray Brown going down to hear Winton Kelly? And Thank you story? very much for that reminder. Dear friends, among the people that I met at the time, Quincy, who had me playing on some of his record dates, what a thrill. He was just the greatest fun, fun guy to be around. He was so relaxed and he welcomed me into his world. And um, I met Quincy. And not long after that, I met Ray Brown, one of my heroes. He looked very much like my mother's brother on the record cover, and I felt connected with him. And Ray and I had a lot of laughs, let's put it that way. The first thing we did to celebrate meeting each other is not to go out and have a drink, no. We went to the Baskin Robbins and had a whole bunch of 21 flavors ice cream. We love ice cream, I love ice cream. And we ate the ice cream and I got friendly with, with him. And um, not long after, and I, I ended up playing, playing with him on a, on a session he was on. The piano player had too many drinks, and he was kind of bombed at the bar. The piano was sitting there by itself, and I said, can I play? And he said, yeah, come on. He'd never heard me play before, and I got to groove in with him. And we played for about, a, I don't know, 10 minutes. He's over there having a ball. I'm having a ball because he would... He would make vocal sounds, yeah, hit, all that, and I'm doing the same thing. And I got off the piano with him and the drummer, Frankie Cap, one of the load of the guitars, and the first thing he said to me, what you gonna be doing in, in June? I said, huh, what am I gonna be doing in June? He said, I want you to come and play with me and Milt Jackson. Milt Jackson, you want me to come? I already met, met Milt. So, there I am with Ray, Milt Jackson, Teddy Edwards, a drummer named Dick Burke. We made some recordings, 1969, and to this day you put that music on, and if you don't tap your foot or groove or get a filled up with joy, you may not be uh, alive. That's the way I look at it. So, these are some mountain memories, so many to Winton. remember. Huh? Going to hear Winton Kelly. See. He comes to New York with Quincy to make a record that they did at Rudy Van Gelder's studio. I went to the session and they played Walking in Space. One of the tunes was Killer Joe with the band and, he, and Quincy had all these different great musicians making sounds, different sounds than the usual saxophone and trumpet solos, you know. And um, uh, I went with him, we went down to the half note, met his friend Holman Hawkins from years and years ago and there were guys hanging out there at the half note. And uh, after that I said, Hey, I want to take you somewhere to see some guys you might be friendly with. I think you're friendly with. He said, oh, yeah. So we got in the cab. And we went up to a place called Dax. And who's playing there but two guys that I already come to know and were really wonderful to me, friendly with me. And um, one was the great Sam Jones, the bassist, who I could tell you about stories for hours. He was such a wonderful guy. made you laugh a lot. And when he played that bass, he was like Ray Brown in terms of the beat was holding up the whole thing. And the man playing the piano was none other than the man who was nicknamed after him because his dad was a fan of Winton Kelly. Winton Kelly. And Winton Kelly saw me and Ray and Sam and they lit up like Christmas tree. And there was a fabulous reunion of friends from years before. And we sat there and just had a good time. There I am with Ray, Winton and Sam. A memorable evening and that's a, one of the evenings where I bonded more with Ray Brown in, and it's amazing because as I told you just now over the last couple of days they've been playing this concert just the piano and the bass me and Ray 
on uh, NPR, and if you turn tune in or stream or whatever you do these days, you would be able to hear what is an outstanding moment of two men having a whale of a time, and it comes through. It's not just the music, but you feel this this wonderful event. Just there's no drums, there's no guitar rhythm. No, it's just the bass and the piano. And believe you me, folks, we're grooving. Yes, yes, we are. So I've been talking, and my dear missus is the cinematographer, the um, the person who making sure all these camera things are stayed in place. They look like they want to fall over. <laughs> Don't reveal all our secrets. Do you want to take There's questions? There's so much more to tell you about both Miles and Sinatra. And I'll tell you, this is my first record on which, on the back of the record, somebody how got these men to write this stuff. And there's Quincy Jones making a statement about your truly. And also Frank Sinatra making a statement. This is 1964, 65. Wait, Frank says it? something about Monty being okay. Yes, maybe you can see that. And um, gosh, yeah. I've said a whole lot. But you know what? Do you I want to take am questions? ashamed to say that I get questions from some of you dear folks out there. And um, I have not been the great answerer of questions. I remember there was a question I almost want to answer this person who said, I don't understand your obsession with boxing. Well, boxing was just a part of life. One of the things we do as a, as a pastime. But for me, it became much more than that because I saw a kind of, let's use the word, artistry in the boxing ring when I saw the great fighters, including Sugar Ray Robinson, a man I got to know very well, Archie Moore, who wrote me letters because he was a, he was a fan of jazz and he played piano for me and he started writing me and we just became friends. They call him the Mongoose. I saw Muhammad Ali as a man, he was like a jazz man in the ring because he was improvising, but he had such a, a positive energy and such a charisma and such a confidence in himself, larger than life, that whatever he did when he was even backing up in the ring, he was effective. Yes, sometimes it didn't work, just like sometimes when I'm playing and I'm dissatisfied with the way it went, but most times I'm hitting that mark, and that mark was to float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and not about drawing blood or hurting the other guy, in fact, when Ali fought and he saw the guy was in trouble, he would try to get the referee to stop the fight. So yes, that's my obsession with boxing. And I'll tell you a whole lot more stories how I would cancel gigs just so I could go to the match to see the fighters. And um, all of us people at that time, including Ray Brown, I got to know Mr. Oscar Peterson very, very well. Oscar was really kind to me. We laughed a lot. We never talked about piano playing that much because what are you going to say to a man who eats the piano like that, like he did? We talked we talk about songs and tunes and, and um, West Indian together. But he called me up and said, did you see that fight? And I'm giving him a round, round by round, blow by blow description. And that was with, um, I remember Winter Marsalis, who recognized my boxing uh, friendship, friendship. And he said, well, what happened in the fight? So, yes. Two or three questions came in asking if you keep in touch with Ernie and how is he doing? Ernie Rankin, incredible, incredible human being, guitar player, mystery, magic man, what I aspire to when I, when I play and I'm inspired by people like Ernie. Very few, it's like, you know, Ernie's in that category of everything is good. You put this kitchen sink in the music and it's a phenomenal thing. Ernie would play a bird on the guitar. Up there, he's down there, and he's just having 
a smile, and the most profound musician. And today at 88, maybe 89 years young, Ernie is okay, he's fine. He's kind of backed away from playing. And the, the, the thing about guys like him and me, the playing involves traveling and getting on the plane and going, I seem to still have the chops to get on the plane and go here and yeah, you got to deal with TSA, which is necessary these days. But um, it's definitely a challenge if people aren't ready to be, you know, on, 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 the, on, on it. And Ernie decided to take it easy. But whenever we play together, I have no explanation of why or how come it was magic. M-A-G-I-C. It was magic with Ernie Rand. It was magic when I played with Bobby Thomas. It was a lot of magic when I played with John Clayton and Jeff Hamilton. Who are those guys? It was magic when I saw Nat King Cole, when I played for Frank Sinatra, when I heard him sing. It was magic. It was magic. And it's, it's, to me it's not music. It's magic. It's a mystery. Where did it come from? Because you, when you get it out of the book, you're not allowed to get the goosebumps. You hear stand-up. The thrill of it all. And that's what the music that made me want to be a musician did to me. It was a magical thing. Ernest Rangman is a magician. Musician, but a magician. And that's what I am. And there are magicians in my life. And thank God for that, because that's what made me want to play. It certainly wasn't the people saying, you have to hold your hands like that. You don't have to hold your hands like that. If you look at Thelonious Monk, his fingers are like that. You know? There were people who had fingers missing. Django Reinhardt had fingers missing on his hand and played the most incredible guitar phrases you ever heard. So... It's what's in here, and what's in here, and what you pick up from life. And with me, I wasn't at a school. I was, I was on the street corner wanting to hang around with Jack Terry and, and, and um, Coleman Hawkins and, and uh, name it. Those are the people that were my inspiration. Milt Jackson, never ever somebody played play the vibe before like Milt Jackson. They had the others, but Milt would, it was like he was B.B. King and the guitar when he would play a note on that steel bar of the vibraphone. You know folks, it's a really <laughs> amazing thing when a guy like me talks so much. It's called talking too much. Somebody say, Manny, why don't you shut up, man? And I, I ask you to excuse me if I talk more than you might have wanted to hear me today. But you know, it's amazing as this time is going by and challenges and people are passing on and coming from the virus and we pray God that this thing will subside and go away. Goodbye. Go somewhere else or don't go anywhere. And we can go back to a kind of normal way that we've been living. And to all special friends out there who know me a little more than just a name, I say one love as Bob Marley used to say. And remember, I'm, I'm one of these guys who are here to try to bring a smile and make, make people feel good. That's my job. Is not to impress you. Yes, there was a time I want to impress you. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. No, the time, the time is now saying help people to feel a little upliftment that um, carries through the day. You know. So I could. One go on question and on. that came a couple of times: How do you, how did you practice or train? If I tried to practice or train, I would hate myself after half an hour. If I practice, I go to the piano. You know, the reason I'm here at the piano now. Because first of all, 99% of the time, I'm going to the piano to have fun, to play a little joke, you know, make a sound that reminded me of a bird or a waterfall. And one of these times I do a session, I'm going to go to the 
upright piano I have that is not 100% in tune. Maybe next week. Maybe next week. I think next week. And I'll go and give you some if I can remember when I would go to the piano, what made me want to go back to the piano again and back to the piano. It was not a practice. And a couple of times, yes, you got to number up them fingers. You got to, you know, these are digits. And if you get, some people get arthritis, somebody called, man, I got Arthur. <laughs> I got arthritis. So you want to keep them nimble. So you do little things to exercise the fingers. And if you bring that, I'm okay, I'm on it, I'm confident. I remember the encouragement I got from my heroes, whether it was Duke Ellington, whether it was Frank Sinatra, whether it was Miles Davis, whether it was Oscar Peterson who patted me on the back and hooked me up with MPS Records and I made about 10 albums, including that famous one that people like, Montreux Alexander, you know. So I, I incorporate that into my now that I'm a, I'm a vessel because I don't have it on paper. I don't have it. You see papers all over the place because I'm, I'm trying to remember maybe something that happened that was so unforgettable, you know. And I could go into my Nat King Cole, Natalie Cole sessions and um, what else? For, and by the way, a little more about... There was an instrument. Oh. <laughs> See you next week, I hope, and have some more fun. I call this the adventures of Monty Alexander, more so than reminiscing in rhythm. That's good. But these are my adventures. Some of them were misadventures with the people who came running looking for me because they thought I had done something I shouldn't have done. And I, I'll go into that another time. I am a survivor of the wars, folks. And it's a beautiful feeling to be a survivor. And it's wonderful to do this thing called running Jamaica. Oh, man, you're running your mouth too much, man. Shut up your mouth, man. Where? You, you talk too much, you mouth too, you know, that kind of a thing. And I came from America and I learned to talk less, a little bit less, like, you know, maybe not less enough. <laughs> <laughs> More or less. On that note, you take care. Happy trails, happy trails to you. Happy trails to you. Until we meet again. So long.